This podcast is brought to you by the Specialty Produce Network. Welcome to Vibrant Raw Living. I'm your host, Victoria Madian. Join me on a journey of discovering your infinite potential. Thank you so much for tuning in. Today, I'm joined by my good friend, Stephen Wakabayashi, and he's currently on a journey exploring meditation and mindfulness around the world. He's been meditating over 12 years with support in practices in regards to Buddhism, yoga, and dance. Before this journey, he was leading creative teams in San Francisco for many recognizable brands, including Apple, Salesforce, Sephora, and Workday. After a major health crisis, he decided to depart from his corporate lifestyle to explore and share meditation practices in six countries around the world with people on his email list, through his YouTube channel, and on his other social media platforms. I met Stephen when we were both at UCSD in my senior year of college, and he is one of my dear, dear friends. I'm so grateful to have him on today. Stephen, thank you so much for being here. Thank you, Victoria. I really appreciate being here. Awesome. So I want to get right into kind of your childhood, where you grew up, and if there were any major adversities that you overcame from a young age. Yeah. Um, I mean, as as I was growing up, I was growing up in this little town called West Covina in Los Angeles, and it is much nicer now, <laughs> but back in the day, it was not super nice. It was a little bit, um, I don't want to say the word, but it was a little bit ghetto. Uh, it was a lot, a lot of it was influenced by uh, activities from Baldwin Park, and that area was not a very good neighborhood. And so there's often school shootings, etc. And <laughs> In that environment, too, it was extremely conservative. And I myself, I'm gay, very gay. And (laughs) if you look through my Instagram, you'll see I have rainbows, sparkles, unicorns everywhere. But it's taken me a long time to get there. Um, All throughout high school and even throughout college, I was really trying to find myself, who I was, and even figuring out my career, my passions. My family is an immigrant family. My mom, my dad came from Japan and Taiwan. And as a child of an immigrant family, there's so much pressure, right, Victoria, Mm -hmm. Uh, where, you know, you have to be, you know, super successful. You have to live the American dream. And oftentimes it's super convoluted with a lot of biases, cultural biases from overseas as well as America to uh, be a doctor, be a lawyer. And so all throughout college, and I'm sure you remember, but, uh, you know, we were taking dance classes together. But on top of that, I was also pre-med and I was Mm -hmm. studying biology, chemistry, um, trying to be a doctor, and it just finally hit me, surprisingly, after college, that that was not what I wanted to do. And so, um, all throughout, you know, high school and college, I had also done a lot of work in um, 
computing. I made websites, I designed uh, just for fun on the side, and it got me through college, it paid through college surprisingly. And I decided one year out after college that I was just going to give it a go. You know, my uh, pre-med advisor told me, hey, you know, you have everything together, just take a gap year. And at that time, gap years were so popular. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. And I just decided to do it. And that kind of got me in the door to advertising. And I did that for about 10 years working in programming, development, as well as um, in design as well. And then working my way up to managing design teams. But I think the biggest pain point was really trying to figure out what I wanted to do and kind of working through just my own sexuality as well. And it just, it was, yeah, I, I definitely felt very accepted in the dance community. Mm -hmm. And at first, if I'm going to be honest, I took dance as a way to differentiate myself as a, (laughs) as a pre-med major, but I instantly fell in love with it. And I was always telling my mom, yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, this is, this is just, to get a leg up on my pre-med applications, but (laughs) secretly I actually really enjoyed it. And I think that's where I actually started finding myself more and more. Well, I remember the first jazz class that you walked into, I just like instantly knew that we were going to be friends. And like, I remember we were doing like jazz walks across the floor or something. And like, I was adding a little sass to it and it was just like immediate connection. It was just like, yes, we're, we're going to be friends. Oh, yeah, but, yeah, yeah. I was yes. like, who is this girl? <laughs> <laughs> Such a tall girl with long legs, so flexible. Oh if you guys God. don't know, Victoria can bend in so many different ways. I was like, oh, my God. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Yeah, it was fun to, it was so, I remember it was just, like, so fun to, like, have a friend in those classes because, you know, for me, I, I took my dance major um, as a way of, getting a lot of my electives. I had finished my um, anthro major and I had a bunch of elective courses and I was like, oh, I could just take all of dance. So we had so much fun together my last, you know, quarter of college and um, it was so good to connect and then went on to do other things. I want to backtrack a little Uh bit just because touching on um, your experience being gay, obviously now with gay marriage rights being what they are and there's such... Um, a different level of acceptance in the LGBTQ community. Um, And I think, you know, even with television shows, there's more acceptance for trans and gay actors. Obviously, that's Mm -hmm. been, you know, I think for gay actors, there's been a lot more acceptance for years, but it might have been, you know, a little bit more hush-hush, but more people are opening up about that. And I feel like kids are growing up in a different climate Um, I know I've seen it with my students in regards to how much acceptance there is towards different backgrounds. And I think for me personally, I grew up around um, gay men um, in the dance community my whole life. So it was never really something Mm -hmm. that I found very strange or or different. And it was just, you know, they were, I knew them like, you know, they were friends of mine and instructors Mm -hmm. and ballet instructors and things. So, but I think... Do you have any advice for for kids that are discovering their sexuality mm-hmm. and maybe realizing that, 
you know, that they are gay. And I think even though it is so accepted in this day and age, it can still be really difficult for kids to be public about it or come out to their family. And what words of advice do you have um, for anybody who's dealing with that? Yeah, you know, it's not an easy thing. And, you know, I don't think anybody chooses to be gay. It is not an easy life. And while I was trying to find myself, I had gone through a long bout of depression, really through uh, high school, early college years, even dealing with suicide. And my advice is really to both ways, actually. I'm trying to think about how I want to say this, but two bits of advice. The first advice is for anyone dealing with potential gay people in their lives. The first thing you don't want to do is to ask, right? That is a huge thing I learned while working with gay youth. You never, ever want to ask people about their sexual orientation because when they're questioning it or when they're trying to figure it out, you know, when you ask if they're gay or not, it's an extremely polarizing question. And at that time, a lot of stuff goes through um, a kid or maybe even an adult's mind of how they want to be perceived, right? Uh, do I want to say something to make them happy? Do I, you know, want to say something just so that, you know, I don't make it uh, more tumultuous, create tension? And so there's a lot more factors at play than someone just trying to be honest. And so if you think somebody in your life is gay, lesbian, queer, transgender, the best thing you can do is to really just support Love them for who they are. Don't ask the questions and allow them to approach you when they're ready. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I think for the people going through it, you know, it it is hard. It is so, so hard. And know that there is a whole community out there to support you. And uh, there's all of these communities online. Uh, the Trevor Project. Mm-hmm. I worked while I was in San Diego at the Hillcrest Youth Center. It's a subsidiary of the center. Uh, it's called the center, but it's the center for uh, LGBT advocacy. And they have a center where kids uh, anywhere from six to 18 can pop in, hang out uh, with other kids, like-minded kids, gay or straight. And, you know, it's... It's there, but I know that, you know, especially for young kids, too, there's a lot of obstacles. And I just want to pop in the fact that, you know, especially coming from an immigrant family, even though America might be super progressive at this moment, a lot of immigrant family ideals are a little bit behind still Mm -hmm. because they're highly influenced based off of the culture they just came from. And so oftentimes with that, you know, even though you might be living in a progressive country, your family environment might be extremely sheltered too. Mm-hmm. So in that regards, yeah, definitely try to seek out online communities or, you know, see if you can have friends to hang out with that might help you out and go with you to some of these um, LGBT centers uh, that will definitely help expand your awareness of how accepted it is. I know for me, at least the biggest thing in depression was feeling that uh, I was alone. Mm-hmm. There was no one to uh, share these thoughts with, you know, but they're everywhere. They're all around. It's just people aren't talking about it. Yeah. Absolutely. Well, those are some really great suggestions and I really 
just honor your journey so much and I'm so grateful that you have gotten to a place where you're so strong and that you've been able to give back to the Mm -hmm, youth. uh I think that's a really, really important part of just sharing the different things we go through in life. So thank you for Uh sharing that. So Uh going back to working in a corporate environment, I know that part of this was a huge inspiration for wanting to kind of break away and go travel for a while. But I know that working in that environment taught you a lot of lessons, but it also helped you realize some different things about who you are. Do you want to share some of that um, with the listeners? Yeah. So I was in an extremely stressful work environment. Advertising is day in, day out. You get in super early in the morning. There are some nights where I would just not sleep at all. You're essentially doing work for clients, right? So when you're in advertising, for example, working in an advertising firm, you would have clients such as Apple, Sephora, Facebook, and these clients will give you work. And the work that I was doing was mostly digital websites, um, iPod apps, uh, iPhone apps, uh, everything that has an LCD screen is what I say to my mom. Uh, <laughs> and um, it's a lot of work. Uh, it is a lot of work. And when you're in that type of environment, you know, you really need to figure out how to set boundaries, right? Especially when I was young, very rambunctious. Um, and have so many things I wanted to do. I killed myself, you know, to get on the A team, to get on the highlight projects of an agency. But after having done that for about eight years, my body, <laughs> after having done that for eight years, it just took a huge toll on my body. And for me, at least, the breaking point or the tipping point was when my digestive system actually shut down. And so while I was working at my last advertising agency, I couldn't digest food anymore. I was in and out of the hospital for about three months. And it was ranging from, you know, taking some MRI tests to sitting in the hospital, waiting for consecutive colonoscopies to figure out what was wrong and why I couldn't get any nutrition into my body. It was a scary time, but at least for myself, uh, I couldn't set the balance. I couldn't set boundaries and I needed that moment to open my eyes and, You know, I think if I could go back now to give myself advice in my younger years or while I was halfway through my tenure in advertising, I would say to myself, you know, set the environment that you need for yourself and keep health number one, right? At the end of the day, if your health isn't there, it doesn't matter if you're saving the world, if you're doing the most amazing things, you're going to only be able to do it for two to three years, right? And you're not going to serve the world any favor when you disappear or you're incapable of working anymore. So putting health number one above everything is really going to benefit the world and yourself so much more. And so, you know, how do you do that, right? It is really being truthful and honest with the things that you need to stay healthy, 
which includes sleep, right? Never sacrificing sleep. You know, sometimes you have projects, sometimes you have, you know, work that comes down the pipeline that require you to put in, you know, 12, 16 hour days. But how do you immediately offset that? Right. Mm -hmm. Not doing those back to back to back to back, thinking you're invincible. And at the same time, using pharmaceuticals. Right. I have this great analogy where I share with people pharmaceuticals are, you know, they're a basic chemistry equation. Right. A plus B equals C and D. A is yourself. B is the pharmaceuticals that you're putting in your body equals C, the outcome that you want, plus D. And D includes all of the byproducts from pharmaceuticals that are collecting in your body. Side it could be the side effects. Exactly, exactly. And to think that you have just A plus B equals C, that is extremely naive thinking. And at least for myself, that was the thinking that I had. You know, If I wanted to stay up, if I wanted to go to sleep, if I didn't want to go to the bathroom, if I wanted to go to the bathroom, there was a pharmaceutical for it, you know? And that's how I lived my life or through these, uh, you know, multicolored pills to supplement this intense lifestyle. And over years and years and years, it just accrued in my body. And, you know, when it comes to your body, it's just like a car, right? You can keep running the car over and over and over, but the car doesn't shut down until one part just completely falls apart. And when that happens, the car just doesn't stop working, right? It just completely shuts down and so very similar to that you know our bodies if you know our bodies are continue if our bodies continue to run it doesn't mean it's perfect in good condition you know parts can be falling apart parts can be accruing all of these impacts of years and years of neglect and we won't notice it until one part just shuts down and at least for myself, it was when my GI system shut down and I just had to reset my entire life. And so keeping health number one and ensuring all the things that lead up to that stays priority is the biggest advice I could give to myself if I were to go back in time. Yeah. I mean, I know how hard you work. I mean, it's probably like, I think I know how hard you work, but you probably even work harder than that. And (laughs) from what I know, you are such a hard worker and you really are the type of person that if you need to get something done, like you are very solution minded about things. You always find a way to make it happen. That's, you know, a quality that I've known about you for as long as I've known you. And it's always been so inspiring and impressive to be around. And I'm grateful yeah. to have a friend like you in my life because yeah. there are a lot of people that sometimes they don't, you know, take that extra step. They make excuses or they don't navigate kind of the solution and mm-hmm. path of the situation. <laughs> and I'm grateful that you've been able to navigate that. However, you know, I think speaking to the fact that there are real consequences for for going um at a degree that is a certain level of intensity for a prolonged mm-hmm. period of time it can you know you need some time for savasana sometimes yeah <laughs> yeah sense. so what was the turning point for you where you know you're healing from these health issues and you're like you know what i've saved up I want to travel. 
how did you begin planning this journey that you wanted to do and really what was the inspiration behind it? Yeah. Yeah. And if I might just add something back to the last point you were saying, um, I think the hardest part, especially for creative individuals, right? Like you or myself, it is when we do the work that we love and that's aligned with us, Mm -hmm. you know, setting boundaries to that is even harder, right? It's like, yeah, I love this. I love what I'm doing. It's like your oxygen. It it is, it is. And that I think is where balance matters most, Mm -hmm. you know? You can work, you know, I'm on the computer and I don't hate the job that I'm doing. And that's the tricky part is like, I'm at my computer for 16 hours, you know, pumping out, churning out presentations, designs, and I love it. Mm -hmm. But, you know, I can't, I wasn't able to catch myself. And I think it takes a bit of, you know, restraint to, you know, not just think about this immediate gratification of doing this thing that you love you know, this creative aspiration, but also thinking about the long run and consistently going back, you know, to that long run picture so that you're able to stay healthy, fit, you know, for the bigger, for the bigger picture. And for the long haul too. I know one of my yoga instructors, he would always tell us in class, he's like the most important thing in your life is your life. If you don't have that, nothing else exists. So just, you know, going back to that point of like, we have to take care of ourselves. We have to, you know, as selfish as it can seem, we do have to put ourselves first and make sure that we are putting on our oxygen mask before we do, you know, anything for another person and make sure that we are aligned as best we possibly can. Obviously, nothing Mm -hmm. is ever going to be perfect, but really to be mindful of that as best as possible. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. And then to go back to your question about, you know, what inspired me, I think at least for you and myself, we've been really into the mindfulness space for a long time. (laughs) Even as college kids, I find that, you know, we were always talking about life, its purpose. (laughs) It's so funny, right? It's like after dance class, oh my God, how did that feel? What do you think about life? so so funny and, and like um, i think even the, in, the <laughs> improvisation dance class that we did it was just like some of the classes and some of the instructors that we were able to work with dance has an effect that can be so mind opening and i think mm-hmm. we went to a, a kind of college where the dance program is pretty postmodern, which is not what i grew up doing i grew up doing a lot of competitive dance which is mm-hmm. Um, not as avant-garde, I would say yeah. it's not as avant-garde, but postmodern is very avant-garde. It's very out there and it's very intellectual and there's a lot of deep underlying meanings behind it sometimes. Sometimes it is just based on somatics and it's almost like poetry, like the viewer just takes what they want to from it. Um, Mm -hmm. so I think it was very expansive mentally, physically and spiritually, Um, And emotionally such a release always when we were in that environment with everybody else and we had such a good, Mm -hmm. such a good group of dancers and movers Mm -hmm. and and performers Mm -hmm. within the the classes that we were in at that time. So it was really just refreshing. But yeah. Yeah. And then I think what was really nice was it always challenged our concept of dance, right? Mm-hmm. What is dance? Who's a dancer? And, you know, from your competitive background, I'm sure they're going to define who's a dancer, who's not a dancer, who's getting points, who's not getting points, right? 
And at our school, it's just like, everybody's a dancer. And mm -hmm. what are they doing? Mm -hmm. What movements are they doing? Can you see the dance in that? And, you know, I think that was a big, big part of at least myself too. Yeah. Definitely agreed how, you know, it set the roots, the foundation to incorporate mindfulness into my life. And I was at college for five years. <laughs> uh, they call it the final lap <laughs> for your fifth year. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. But doing double major and dance and neuroscience and then leaving college, I think dance had this huge impact on me to really consider mindfulness as a part of my every waking moment. And so, you know, I was always blogging about it. I was always sharing, you know, articles from tiny Buddha on my Facebook occasionally here and there. And I always had it as a part of my practice, but not as the center of my practice mm -hmm. for the longest time, you know, as I was in advertising, it was like, go, 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 go. Um, but then, you know, I would go on YouTube and binge on these mindfulness videos, uh, to be a better person. You know, I always strive to challenge myself, challenge my thinking. And I think when I hit the wall with my health issues, mm -hmm. you know, I, so a little bit more background on that. I was in San Francisco, you know, going back and forth between UCSF, the best hospital I could find, trying to figure out what was wrong. And I could not for the life of me and for all the doctors, all the specialists that I had could not figure out what was wrong. You know, they would do all these tests. I would stay in the hospital, take all these, you know, blood work, blood samples, blood draws left and right. And they could not figure it out. They just said, oh, you know, you have arthritis. Oh, you have IBS, IBD. Oh, you're just falling apart. <laughs> and they would prescribe me all these different medications. And I call it kind of the shotgun approach. They would try a type of medication first, see if it worked or didn't work, and then move me on to another medication. And something about that just did not feel right with me. I was, one, very exhausted going back and forth between the hospital and work was just so time-consuming. But two, you know, I didn't agree with what some of the doctors were saying, too. They mm -hmm. said, the sooner you can embrace this, the sooner you can put these pharmaceuticals into your life for the rest of your life, you're going to be a better person. And although I agree to, I know, although, you know, for some people, right, yeah. that might be the case yeah. for myself, at least, you know, I'm in my late twenties. I, it just did not feel right. And hearing that from the doctors, I, I just could not live with it. So I went to a holistic healer in San Francisco. She's amazing. If you're interested, Barbara Custer, up in Mill Valley. Oh my God, this woman is, I call her the witch doctor, but <laughs> she, <laughs> she's an acupuncturist by trade, mm -hmm. but she is just so amazing. She deals with a lot of GI issues, but in general, holistic health, um, very different from Western medicine, which is symptomatic treatment, right? If you have a bruise, here's something to treat the bruise, not thinking, okay, what caused the bruise? Mm -hmm. Uh, what might be making it worse internally, right? And she really looks at it 360 degrees. 
And so with her, I spent a few months just revamping, not just, you know, my digestive, but other areas yeah, of your health. Yeah, too. yeah, exactly. Not just my digestion, but everything from my lifestyle to how I manage my work. Mm. And at the end of the day, what she told me was, you know, this is what you've got. This is the work environment you've put yourself in. And this is the demands of your employer. Yeah. It's up to you to make a decision of what you want to do, right? If this is killing you, it's your decision to stay as much as it is to leave, mm-hmm. you know? And I think when I started seeing it from that perspective, I said, wow, I'm actually making the decision to do this upon myself, mm. right? A lot of people will say, you know, eh, you know, this is my employer, this is their demands, but, you know, I think we're all so talented in our unique ways and we have the capabilities to do the work that we love mm-hmm. wherever we want to do. And it is our decision to do and our decision as we decide to be in whatever work environment that we're in. And so for me, it was a big, big decision to make to step away from my work. And I said, you know what? I got to take care of my health. Mm -hmm. I need to step away from this. And it was very hard to, it was very well paying job doing the work that I loved, extremely fast paced. And so once I stepped away from it, I said, you know, what do I want to do? And at that moment, uh, I had also been meditating consecutively for a year as a part of my treatment plan, my prescription from Barbara. And she nice. said, you know, just, just try this out. You know, you know, I had meditated here and there as a part of yoga, mm-hmm. you know, and when you're in Savasana and I was doing yoga three to four times a week, uh, you, know, you were in this meditative state for a few minutes, but I had never taken it seriously until Barbara had mentioned this to me. And so I said, you know what? I'm in the hospital, whatever, let's just do it. Mm -hmm. And so I started meditating every single day for about a year and it just radically transformed my health. I was able to understand my body so much more. I was able to assess whether I was feeling good, whether I was feeling bad quicker. And I was able to, understand my needs my visceral needs so much more yeah and that visceral need was telling me you need to step away from your job Uh, yeah what were you gonna say no 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 go for it one of the things that i have loved about meditation for years is that it brings you back to this state of connecting with what really matters your breath your heartbeat, your, what is right in front of you, picking a drishti to focus on either if that's a mantra or a physical, you know, point of focus that you're visually bringing that to, um, bringing that into the yoga practice, you know, through asanas and things, it's very rewarding because you're able to just push past a lot of boundaries that you have mentally and, yeah. And apply that to so many different areas of your life. So I think as much as things can be a source of stress, they can also be a source of meditation if we allow them to. And sometimes it's difficult to make that transition happen um, and Mm -hmm. have that crossover. But there are so many benefits to just stripping the things away that you don't need and giving yourself that 
that piece of like, no. And I'm sure coming from a background in advertising, you know that people are bombarded with, you need this, you need that, you need to be sold this. And it's like mindfulness is almost the complete opposite of being advertised Mm -hmm. to. It's like, you know, you're almost doing some Wimbledon style backhands to get away from all of this and just be like, no, I don't need this. No, I don't need that. Like, get that ball out of my court, you know? Um, so it's, I mean, for you, the contrast must have been so stark, but what was that experience like for you taking Mm. the contrast between working in the advertising industry and how do you feel like people can take a different approach when they are being advertised to, because as we know with social media, they are gathering so much data and like cookies and all this type of stuff. Like there are these companies that are tracking their metrics so closely to want to know what people like to sell it to them, you know, looking at people's hashtags, using different algorithms, all this type of stuff to gain as much data as they can about a person to sell them stuff. So You know, I feel like personally that's affected people's impulse control in Mm -hmm. um, and being that people use social media on such a regular basis that can unfortunately translate into their life and into their lifestyle where it can, you know, and not necessarily be a source of causation of more of that, but it can be a Mm -hmm. contributor to that. So do you have any advice um, in regards to practices that people can keep in their lifestyle when it comes to um, being mindful and even with their purchases, with their actions, with their behaviors and really checking in with themselves in those times. Yeah. Yeah. I think I want to start off with a little bit of background of, you know, what are advertisers doing? Mm -hmm. Right. And having worked in this field for almost 10 years And, you know, the whole Cambridge Analytica scandal, I was in that space. I was working at a media agency. Media is what you call Facebook ads, Twitter ads, any ad that is being run on websites, right? So you call them media. So I was working at a media agency while I was in San Diego. And all the data I was being able to pull of all the consumers that are visiting a company's website, their Facebook page. It wasn't just Cambridge Analytica. It was the entire United States doing that. And there's this amazing documentary out right now called The Great Hack or A Great Hack on Netflix that Mm -hmm. accounts the story of Cambridge Analytica and its impact on the Trump election, Brexit. And they put it so succinctly at any given moment, they had anywhere from four to 5,000 data points on every single consumer that they were able to pull. And these weren't just people that had opted into these Facebook quizzes that they had run to gather intel on people, but all of their friends as well that hadn't opted in. So at that time, it was really the wild, wild west on Facebook. Facebook was creating as many Uh, as many tools as possible for media companies to use so that they can become a leader in the advertising space. And as a part of that, they were giving out troves of information to whatever company that wanted it based on these users. There was essentially saying, hey, instead of going to advertise on the New York Times, right? 
come to us on Facebook because we can give you even more data on your users. And over years and years of that, it has turned into this convoluted space where anything went. It was such a gray area because it wasn't, and it still is not being, um, being tracked and being monitored. Uh, monitored. Yeah. People's safety is in. Yep. Yeah. Safety. Exactly. Exactly. By the government as well. And people's and privacy so, too. <laughs> yeah, I know. I know. I know. And you, I mean, it's kind of exhausting and daunting to read through every privacy policy, but that's where you start off to see what exactly are you releasing to these companies, mm-hmm. right? For example, if you look at Fitbit or any of these fitness trackers, the privacy policy will state and share with you how they're using those data and those metrics. Some of the fitness companies will actually share those with third-party vendors so that they're able to make money. And as you think about every single product that you're purchasing to optimize your life, make your life better in a way, also think about the information that you're providing. And in that regards, also think about the products that are being recommended to you. You know, it is all being uh, channeled through these different agencies, uh, Facebook and Twitter and Instagram now. And, the people who are buying these ads to show you these products, these companies are the ones who are showing out a lot of money to do so. And as a consumer who loves reading reviews myself, understand that these are not necessarily the best products either. Just know that they're the ones who are shelling out the most money mm-hmm. to get in front of you. Yep. To buy as much information of you as possible. So maybe not a tip necessarily, but just take into consideration the next time you see an ad, understand where the company or understand how the company had to get there to get the advertisement in front of you. And maybe that might change your perception of that company a little bit as you think about purchasing their products. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, I would love to get into your journey and um, how it, what your first stops were and what the things were you um, learned along the way. I mean, you went all through Europe and Asia. And, mm-hmm. I mean, yeah, yeah. just go for it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so leading up to it, right? So I was really sick in San Francisco. I quit my job and... At that time, I was also making these mindfulness videos on YouTube on the side. Mm-hmm. And a big part of it was also to deepen my relationship with mindfulness and its teachings. And so I said, you know what? You know, I love traveling. I love making these mindfulness videos. So why don't I combine it together? And I had finished reading, so funny, um, Elizabeth Gilbert's book, E Pray Love. <laughs> and yes 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 and in her book she leaves her job as a writer to i mean she doesn't leave but she goes to do a project essentially writing about mindfulness in three countries she goes to indonesia she goes to india she goes to italy and she writes in her book about eating throughout these countries praying throughout these countries and loving throughout these countries and so i say you know what 
this is really interesting. Let me do the same thing. <laughs> and so I looked up these meditation centers throughout the world. And at that time, too, I was also thinking about going to a Vipassana retreat. A Vipassana is a silent meditation retreat uh, where you sit down you know, the agenda changes from retreat to retreat, but essentially it is a silent meditation retreat where you practice Buddhism, right? And I was really interested in it, but I never had the opportunity to do so because of my work. And so I said, you know what, let me just try doing a handful of different Vipassana meditation retreats around the world. So I ended up going to do a meditation retreat in Massachusetts, which is the center of mindfulness in the United States, surprisingly, right? So funny. I did not know that. Um, it is very, very interesting <laughs> to, to know that, but yeah. Yeah, yeah. I did it in Massachusetts. I did a meditation retreat in Japan at a Buddhist temple. I went to Thailand to practice Vipassana in the Theravada tradition. I went to India to practice meditation where the Dalai Lama sat. I went to Plum Village in France to practice Buddhism. And I ended with a Vipassana retreat in the UK, which is uh, the Vipassana.org, or no, it's Dhamma.org, uh, the Vipassana that's really popular all around the world. And so I said, you know, let me go through this, let me document it. And so on YouTube, I did a vlog documenting all the different things I was doing, my travels, uh, seeing all the different sites. I had actually stopped by different countries along the way, uh, so that I wouldn't, <laughs> so that I wouldn't get too bored, uh, with meditating. But at the same time, I wanted to hit up certain stops that I wanted to see too, like, you know, Berlin, um, throughout all throughout Asia, Cambodia, and, uh, it was a really interesting trip. Yeah. So I documented it all throughout YouTube and on my Instagram too. And as I was posting on Instagram, I started getting a bit of a following of all these different people who were also interested in the trip. So as a part of my journey, I started writing this long form content under each post on my Instagram, talking about the lessons, the things I've learned throughout every step of the way. And, uh, Going into it, too, I had a different idea of what it was going to be. I was going to do a documentary of each individual retreat I had attended. But when I had gone to Massachusetts, my first retreat, I saw that they were just so adverse to any you know, documentation, any electronics being out. And so I said, you know what? I'm going to respect them. I'm going to respect the process and the policies and so let me figure out how I want to document it, but not as a documentary. And so it turned into this Instagram picture and long form writing. And so, yeah, I had gone all around the world and I just came back to Los Angeles uh, after having been in Asia and Europe for about eight months <laughs> living out of a backpack. It was exhausting to say the least, but very, very awakening. Yeah. So throughout your journey, as far as eating, praying and loving is concerned, what are some of the takeaways? What are some of the, your favorite things that you ate? 
in different areas mm. of the world because there's a lot of good food in Asia and Europe. And <laughs> yeah. So let's go down the list. Eat, pray, and love. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> so eating. Oh, my God. I would say the best spots to eat were in Hong Kong. Hong Kong is the home of dim sum, but also everywhere you go, the food is just so, so, so delicious. It is like just street perfect. Food. Oh my God. Street food, but the sit down too, Victoria, mm-hmm. like, oh my God. Like you go into a dim sum restaurant, these dishes are like $1, $2 and it's just the most tasty, but the lightest food because mm-hmm. all the ingredients are just so simple and so great. Yeah. And I went to Japan, the home of, you know, the simplest, simplest cooking yeah. and yeah. And uh, I'm going to add to, as a part of my healing journey, I went from being um, pescatarian, though I ate meat a little bit here and there, so omnivores uh, diet to being almost vegan. Mm. I do eat egg white, but for the most part, mostly plant products aside from egg whites. And yeah, yeah. (laughs) Yeah, as a part of my um, research to figure out what was causing inflammation in my body, I learned that a lot of these foods that I was consuming is just not good for me, including meat, including egg yolk, surprisingly, mm-hmm. and certain types of nuts. Yeah. Oh, it's so interesting that everyone is so different. And I have to say, I really related to you when you were talking about meeting with that holistic you know, nutritionist in San Francisco. I was like, man, I wish I would have met her when I was in my later years of high mm-hmm. school because... You know, one of the reasons I transitioned to eating plant-based and raw was because I had those intense digestive issues and I was handed a cornucopia of medication options that Mm -hmm. I was suggested to me that I take, you know, for the rest of my life in order to manage this. And I was just like, no, there's got to be a different way. So I relate to that journey and I think it's nice that you were able to find so many different plant-based options Mm-hmm. Um, throughout your travels because I mean that's it's just really nice to hear that and I yeah. think a lot of people don't realize that a lot of most of the world eats a mainly plant-based diet you know it's really only in countries where we have a lot of government subsidi- subsidized foods like meat and dairy and grains and soy and all this kind of stuff that mm-hmm. we're able to be able to afford that um, type of food, but in other areas of the world, that's not always the case. So there are a lot of thriving cultures around the world that have, you know, decent health that don't keep animal products a part of their regular every single meal type of eating routine. And, mm-hmm. you know, that can actually, it can be really healing for people. Um, yeah. To yeah. evaluate that, you know, it's it's different for every single person, but I'm glad that it was a positive change for you. Yes, and I was in 13 countries, 26 cities. Vegan is on the rise all around the world Yay! because people, yeah, yeah, surprisingly. That's and awesome. I use this amazing tool. Have you heard of it? It's called Happy Cow. Oh yeah. Oh yeah, it's amazing. It's the Yelp of vegan food and. They're all around the world. So if you're traveling, I highly recommend using it. And I was using it to find food all around the world that was vegan, plant-based, extremely delicious, and very cost-effective. Yep, yep. 
Yeah. And so I would say highlights were also Japan. I mean, Japan cooking because the ingredients are so simple, so delicious. Um, you can go up and eat the most plain, you know, plain Jane pancake, but you're like, Oh my God, this is amazing. And also the same thing goes for Italy. Surprisingly, everything was so good. I had this pasta dish that was just pasta and olive oil in Italy. And it was the most amazing pasta I've ever eaten. The pasta was, you know, homemade, freshly made, and the olive oil was fresh, homemade too. And it was just, oh, I would go back in a heartbeat. <laughs> now, bringing the mindfulness into it, obviously yes. there are a lot of people that eat every single day of their life multiple times, but do you feel like all of this practice and mindfulness changed your relationship to food and your body and even maybe your stress levels and your digestion, do you feel like you took more time to really enjoy what you were eating? Did that change at all for you? Mm -hmm. like yeah, yeah. Great question. A big part of the meditation practice is also practicing meditative eating. Mm -hmm. And at a couple of the retreats, you were required to eat in silence, to enjoy the food, to munch on the food. And while I was in Massachusetts, we have this practice where you would hold the bowl or plate or whatever you had in front of you with both of your hands and imagine all of the people that had helped to get the food onto mm -hmm. your plate. Yeah. So thinking about the farmers, thinking about the cooks, thinking about everyone that was a part of the process. And it not only makes the food taste better because you appreciate it more, but you're more conscious while eating. And with that, you chew a lot more. You add more saliva to the food. It helps your digestion. Um, oh, my God. My mouth is just like salivating while I'm talking. But this, <laughs> yeah, this practice of mindful eating that I was learning just really helped transform also my relationship with food and how I was consuming because while I was in the workplace, it is so common to just mm. eat quickly at, yeah. you know, your desk at lunch. You know, you're just like, rah, 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 rah. You're like, yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. And you're always doing something else mm -hmm. while you're eating. And if you go to countries like Italy, for example, they don't multitask while they eat. You know, they eat with people, they eat by themselves, but really the focus is on the food. And so as a part of my journey, I just really loved and appreciated that and it really transformed my health, let me tell you, as I was transforming my relationship with food and how I was eating it. That's amazing. So yeah, throughout yeah. all of your like trips throughout like India and um, you know, more of the Eastern Asian countries, what did you find as far as because there's so many temples and beautiful structures and things like that there? Did you feel like the environment really played into the level of meditation that you were able to reach? What was, what were some of the factors that helped intensify that for you? Yeah. Yeah. So we're in the pray now, right? Yes. <laughs> yes. Eat and pray. So as a part of praying, meditating, going to these different destinations, I think, it, I think, you know, the highlight of it was at least to be surrounded by like-minded people also mm -hmm. looking for the same thing. And, you know, I, when I was going through my health issues, I was saying to myself, oh, I'm going through this by myself. You know, I'm so sick. Nobody understands me. But as I was going on this meditation journey, 
wow, like people come from all walks of life also dealing with very similar things as well. And when you think about the statistics, right, we have seven point what six billion people now. Somebody is bound to be going through very similar things, also looking for similar solutions on a similar path. And meditation brought that to me. And so as a part of that, I met with some amazing, amazing people, also having gone through digestive issues, and we shared our stories, what worked, what didn't work. And in the confines of, you know, India, up in the mountains, in France, and these different meditation centers too, they're usually out in the outskirts, Mm -hmm. away from city center. And something about that is just so nurturing. It is relaxing, it's calm, quiet. And so with that, I was able to really find my center. I really loved being in France, especially at Plum Village. Plum Village is this meditation center founded by Thich Nhat Hanh. Mm-hmm. He's a very, yep, very, very books. big. Oh my God, his books are amazing. Yes, I highly recommend all his books. Um, he, because he was exiled from uh, exiled from Vietnam at the time when the North and South were going head to head, he went and found a refuge in France south of France and ended up founding this village called Plum Village. And here they practice what he calls modern Buddhism. And it is very different. It wasn't silent, but it was, you do what you need to, to find yourself. And so some people were silent. Some people were talking. um, Some people were meditating. Some people weren't meditating and everyone was just so happy And I think that was a really interesting concept. Yeah, really, really interesting concept of a meditation retreat there. Versus, yeah, yeah, I feel like that is really beautiful because it's so true in life. Like everybody has their different journey and their path to self discovery, and it's not like the same for everyone. And we thankfully have a lot of free will to be able to exercise that, and. I think probably when you're in a space like that, I would hope that people can become more aware of their own mental blocks and how to work through Mm. those. Mm -hmm. Was that an experience you had? Yeah. Yeah. And I think that brings us nicely into the love. You pray love. And I think in my entire journey, I just finally found love for myself. You know, I, didn't realize how much of it I was lacking, how much I was so focused on making myself better, more perfect, right? But it was the awakening that I'm just perfect as I am. Sure, you know, I might not be, you know, where Elon Musk is, right? But being, (laughs) I know, he's he's an alien. (laughs) Straight up. Uh, But, you know, finding the appreciation how we're so perfect in our individual ways and finding that love in myself. I finally found that love in others, you know, stop comparing myself to other people, vice versa. And I think that was the biggest takeaway of this mindfulness journey was just ultimately finding that it is okay where we are in life, where I am in life at least. And that, I'm trying my best and everyone is trying our best and there's nothing wrong with that. And yep. Yep. And I think that biggest takeaway just really helped to recenter 
my mind, my soul. And it is, yeah, it is now taking me into my next chapter of life. <laughs> That's awesome. Yeah, I feel like when it comes to perfection, perfection's not a destination. It's mm-hmm. really just like, it's it's a state of being because we really are exactly where we need to be. We're doing exactly what we need to be doing and making the most out of each of those moments through being mindful just intensifies that. You know, I feel like it elevates everything, but I think the pursuit of perfection, I did an episode on this a while ago. It can be so detrimental. It can hurt a lot more than it, it, um, I think provides benefit in the long term. Mm -hmm. And I think striving for improvement with the, with having mindfulness and appreciation and gratitude along the process is so much more than the, the realm that a lot of people can get into with the comparison and Mm -hmm. um, Mm -hmm. self-criticism in a really negative way. That's not constructive and Mm -hmm. it can just break you down from the inside out. And sometimes that comes from external forces and sometimes it comes from within, but I'm so grateful to know that you were able to, you know, let go of whatever may had been lingering around you and just really fully experience that self-love in such a healthy way and such a a um, safe and welcoming, mm-hmm. accepting environment because that may not have, you know, been, you know, a huge part of your past throughout every single stage, but I'm very glad that you were able to have such a healing experience you know, going to all these different places and meeting so many people. Yeah. 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 And I would love to get into, you know, in depth into each destination, but you know, it's a lot. (laughs) So if you're interested, I also have accounts and long form writing of every destination I've been to on my Instagram. So if you go to Instagram.com forward slash Stephen Wakabayashi, you can find all of my learnings with every destination and yeah, it's just an amazing opportunity and I hope everyone can do their own hopefully in the future too. Totally. And we'll have links in the description for Steven's Instagram, YouTube website, (laughs) all that stuff. So you can um, look into all of that and he's definitely going to be coming back on the podcast to talk more. So Stephen, any mm. final thoughts you want to wrap up with this episode? Anything you want to share with um, anything with people? Just some final thoughts? Mm. Yeah. I think the final thought is just really piggybacking off of what we just talked about. It is understanding that we're all perfect the way we are. And there's never use of comparing ourselves to someone else because at the end of the day, they don't have the same education as us. They don't have the same parents as us. They don't have the same cultural background or the education. And so we're never going to be like somebody else either, you know. And as we start to find our own path and we let go of all this comparison we do over and over and over, we can find self-love and appreciation and ultimately become our ultimate self through that process. 
Well, that's beautiful, and I I just love that. I feel like becoming also just friends with who you are in the mirror and seeing through people's external and through to their spirit is so important. And I'm sure you got to experience that, you know, not only throughout your life, but even more intensely on this journey as well. Mm. And mindfulness really helps with that, of course. (laughs) Thank you so much for having me, Victoria. So. Oh, this is so fun. Great conversation. I love talking about this. <laughs> well, I always love talking with you, Stephen. It's such a pleasure to have you on. Thank you so much. Thank you for tuning in to Vibrant Raw Living. Remember that you are just as worthy, deserving, and capable of achieving and maintaining your dreams as much as anyone else. If you have found this podcast useful, please subscribe via iTunes or SoundCloud and share it with your friends and family. You can find links to my Instagram, YouTube, Facebook, Pinterest, and Snapchat in the show notes below. And if you'd like to follow me for updates, which I only share via email, come on over to my website at victoriamadian.com. I love you, and I'm wishing you a wonderful day. Go out there and discover your infinite potential. 